0: Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger on this episode of Jill on Money. We're talking about why you need to care about income and asset
1: inequality. Most of the people who are likely to read this book are from the portion of the American population that's doing fine, and it's really important for them to get the message that a huge chunk of the American population is not, and it's getting worse. We the people is falling apart because we share less in common, and that's something we all ought to be acutely concerned about
0: welcome to the Jill on money podcast we are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs sometimes when we have guests on the program uh, they're a little wonky and I become the translator in this case our guest Binyamin Applebaum you might have seen his byline in the New York Times because he's been writing about economics and business for the editorial page for almost a decade he was also a Washington correspondent covering economic policy after the 2008 crisis but he's written a new book it's called The Economist's Hour and in this book he tells the story of how economists essentially didn't have a lot of sway in this country before the 1960s the story is compelling because it pieces together the evolution of how economists really became integral to the creation of policy in the United States and how they got an elevated status so I am delighted to introduce to you Binya Applebaum I think you're really gonna enjoy this interview
1: you're listening to Jill on money with Jill Schlesinger
0: all right first of all why did you write this big fat book
1: You know, I got fascinated by uh, this revolution, this quiet, really important revolution that happened beginning in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, where economists begin to gain influence over public policy uh, and really to take control of the course of public policy and to reshape the way that government operates in our lives and as a result to reshape our lives.
0: You start with a premise that these four decades 1969 to 2008 that the evolution of economists you sort of recounted through different economists what was going on before that some schlub is like it's 1930 something I become an economist what does that career look like for me
1: It was very different, and it's fascinating how different it was. Economists did not play a central role in policymaking. There was a professor of economics at Columbia, a guy named J.M. Clark, who complained to a friend that he was paid about as well as a good carpenter. Uh, I don't know how the carpenter felt about that, but Clark felt that he was horribly underpaid. Paul Volcker, when he was a young man, worked at the Fed basically as a human calculator, and he... Uh, went home from work one night and told his wife that he saw no prospect of getting ahead at the Fed, no prospect of building a career there because there were no economists among the leadership of the central bank. So, you know, it was a time when economists were a a much smaller profession, a much more peripheral profession. Uh, There were things that they did, but they certainly were not in the halls of power.
0: And so what happened after World War II? What was the reliance on economics and what did that mean in terms of public
1: policy? So the world begins to change after World War II and for two basic reasons. The first is that government is just getting bigger. It's doing a lot of different things uh, and that expansion requires expertise to manage it. And economists first come into government basically uh, to help manage the complexity of government, to organize the way that government is spending money, to help figure out the best ways of pursuing new goals. One of those new goals is to maintain prosperity and to ensure that the economy is growing and people are benefiting. And pretty quickly, economists begin not just to work in the boiler room, but to come up to the boardroom and to set the course of policy to begin to influence how government pursues that very important goal.
0: Now, and and some of it seems rather altruistic that I want to help society through policymaking. And in the early stages, this is about income inequality or access or just fairness right
1: the first economists who come into government believe profoundly uh, that hands-on management will improve economic conditions that they can literally make the world a better place and moreover that one of the primary responsibilities of government is to ensure that people are broadly benefiting that those at the bottom are better off those at the top are better off uh, that, that inequality is limited
0: how does that start to shift and who is the shape shifter
1: It's really during the 1960s that this paradigm begins to fall apart. There's like three decades of really strong economic growth after World War II, and as that begins to sputter, a new breed of economists really come to the fore, and they argue That the government needs to revive economic growth by taking its hands off the economy, by stepping back and relying on markets in place of bureaucrats. And really importantly, they argue that the very focus on inequality, on the broad distribution of of wealth, uh, is a problem. It's getting in the way of economic growth. And if you want to maximize growth, what you need to do is let the chips fall where they may. Some people are going to get very wealthy, but you shouldn't worry so much about that because everyone will be at least a little better off And that gospel is really what this book is about. Uh, that set of ideas which really take hold beginning in the early 70s
0: would you say that the architect of that the first architect of probably many would be Milton Friedman
1: the most important figure in this revolution is Milton Friedman he's this elfin libertarian who is <laughs> you know commands any room he walks into even though he's often the smallest person there he's this brilliant debater one of his opponents famously says that it's best to debate Milton when he's not in the room because if he's there he's gonna beat you uh, you know, sparkling wit, really good at breaking down economic concepts and this passion, the this single-minded passion for the idea that the solution to almost every problem in public policy is for government to get out of the way.
0: And we should also note that his wife was also part of this it sounded more like she was sort of the silent partner behind the in the background but also an economist right
1: yeah Rose Friedman they met actually in in uh, graduate school at the University of Chicago they were seated next to each other by a professor and a marriage ensued it's actually fascinating how many of the great economists of the mid-century had these female partners who often did a lot of the work <laughs> had a lot of the ideas and got like 5% of the credit at most.
0: (laughs) That's hardly ever happens anymore. It's very hard to believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So make the case for the embrace of markets. What was the theory behind it? What did it try to do and where did it fail?
1: The idea was that growth was slowing down and it was slowing down because the government was meddling. Friedman basically said, look, imagine you're in a dark room and you're trying to get across it. Right now what we're doing is kind of groping and... Taking each step and thinking about what comes next, but actually the best way to get across a dark room, which is sort of the task of a policymaker dealing with uncertainty, is just to set a fixed course and walk in a straight line. You want to minimize the amount of decisions that you're making. You want to minimize the amount of complexity in the decision making. He said, for example, that the Federal Reserve should be replaced by a computer that just increased the supply of money at a regular rate. He said the best thing you can do is to stop causing problems. And get out of the way and trust that markets will deliver better results than people where did that go awry it goes awry at the very beginning it begins with a misconception about the nature of markets markets are human creations Uh, we make the rules we set the boundaries we determine the goals and if you stop doing that there's no such thing as a natural market basically uh, it's just a market in which all of a sudden you've decided that you know the rules are now you can do whatever you want and the rules are now that the winner gets uh, the lion's share of, of the returns and that's a particular kind of market. It's a kind of market that delivers huge inequality uh, and that actually doesn't deliver broad prosperity and that's what we've seen over the last 40 years.
0: Where do we first start seeing inequality bubble up? from this market driven thesis
1: it takes a little while to get going but one of the earliest places that you see it is in the sphere of deregulation so the Carter administration really begins aggressively to deregulate transportation they start with the airlines they bring in this eccentric but brilliant economist named Alfred Kahn to take apart the federal regulatory system for airlines at the time uh, where airlines could fly how much a ticket cost what sandwiches you could serve on airplanes were all decided by a board of bureaucrats in Washington DC And Kahn in the Carter administration said, no, we're going to open up the skies. We're going to let airlines make these decisions. So that's great for flying. It means that flying gets a lot cheaper. People today fly many times more often than people in the 1960s. The misery of the experience notwithstanding, (laughs) uh, we've mostly gotten what we want. Who gets hurt in this process are the airline workers. And Kahn is very explicit about it. He says that one of his goals is to transfer money out of the hands of the workforce and into the hands of consumers so that sounds great in in principle because almost none of us are airline workers and most of us are flyers But when you start doing it across the economy in place after place after place transferring wealth from the workers uh, what you get is that everyone's making less money or stagnating economically falling behind Uh, and that pattern really begins to take hold and that's really where you start to see these yawning gaps
0: how much of that is also just that things were cheaper overseas
1: There is no question that economists are not the sole creators of the modern world. There were forces at work that were beyond the control of any policymaker. Globalization spread manufacturing across the globe and with it, you know, equalized wealth so that people in poorer nations were benefiting even as middle and working class populations in the developed world were losing ground. I don't want to minimize that. What economists did have a heavy hand in was uh, the terms of that evolution. Uh, dictating that America pressed for change as quickly as possible, made relatively little effort to help workers deal with those transitions, Uh, or to provide a safety net when they fell down. That's really where the problem is. It's not that economists created globalization or even unleashed it. It was coming. It was going to happen. But we chose to sort of tie our hands behind our backs in dealing with that process. And And, that's what was so painful. and,
0: And right, and forgetting that there would be losers in each of these consequences, the group of losers kept getting bigger.
1: Forgetting is the nice version. Economists actually... Said explicitly that there would be losers the justification they offered is that as long as society was benefiting in the aggregate then it was potentially possible to help the losers the key point there is potentially they didn't Mm. actually insist that those losers got help they were willing to justify these policies on the grounds that those people could be helped and the tragedy is that we didn't
0: and so like we almost look at like this as you said forces you say like okay well now all of a sudden economists who are espousing these market theories are shaping public policy and at the same time corporations are forgetting sort of that the fact that they are chartered by a municipal organization or a municipality and that they have some you would hope allegiance to their workforce and the communities but then all of a sudden you sort of have the 80s which is like screw my workers screw the community we're just gonna put shareholder value front and center did that come as a result of those economic policies or was that happening anyway
1: Milton Friedman writes a very famous article in the early 1970s uh, in the New York Times actually in which he argues that the sole responsibility of a corporation is to maximize profitability and other economists are making a similar case now I don't want to necessarily maintain that economists created this phenomenon I think there's a complex interplay between the ideas advocated by economists And the self-interest of corporations there's a very famous economics paper in the mid-1970s that argues that the corporation is the best form of capitalism and at the bottom it says sponsored by the eli Lilly corporation (laughs) so you know there is a relationship here and they basically you know are are encouraging each other one thing that's fascinating about that is that economists like milton friedman didn't always view big corporations as a good thing if you go back to his early years one of the very few purposes he thought government should serve is to prevent corporate concentration to prevent the rise of big, powerful corporations. But by the 70s and certainly by the 80s, a lot of conservative economists had really made their peace with the rise of large corporations, came to think of them as allies. And yeah, I mean, our modern economy is very much shaped by the power of those large corporations.
0: And politicians also just kind of bought into this. So you kind of recount through each administration. is fascinating that It's almost like it's creeping incrementalism that, you know, Carter was sort of buying into it and Reagan was clearly buying into it. And even that when Clinton came in as this, you know, middle of the road Democrat, he's filled his administration with a bunch of people who are all like bowing at the gods of the markets.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a couple in in broad outline, a lot of people think of some of these. Changes in public policy as having been the work of the Reagan administration And the story is just much more complicated than that it starts earlier than Reagan It was bipartisan to a very significant extent and as you say, you know The Clinton administration when it comes in really makes its peace with many of the major changes that had happened under Reagan and says Okay, this is now mainstream public policy uh, in the United States. I think by the end of the 20th century I don't want to overstate this point, but the degree of difference in economic policy between the two major political parties has gotten awfully small, certainly by comparison uh, with the historical diversity
0: so let's do a little more recent history and let's let's start with the the Greenspan years of the Federal Reserve so tell us what kind of economist Greenspan
1: was so Alan Greenspan is a fascinating figure he he's an economist uh, who who went into private practice early on and made a fortune as an advisor to big businesses he doesn't get his PhD until quite late in life he's not really a theoretical guy uh, but he has a deep understanding of politics and a deep understanding of how the economy works He comes into office in the late 1980s as the head of the Fed, and from the outset he says, I'm not interested in financial regulation. It wasn't that he thought markets worked perfectly, but he thought that regulation would make things worse and so he he literally says you know he takes an oath of office to be the nation's chief financial regulator and as he's doing it he's saying in his own mind this part I'm not serious about
0: he comes in and then that's the crash of 87 didn't he come in right before the crash Yep. okay so the crash occurs and what happens after that crash in terms of regulation
1: the Fed dives in and and fixes you know the immediate problem by pumping money into the economy basically so the Fed responds aggressively to the crash adjusts monetary policy the the stock market picks back up. The economy barely feels the effect. So that crash is remembered on Wall Street, but it doesn't really show up in, like, national GDP data. And Greenspan's ability as a manager of monetary policy is really affirmed by that early episode.
0: But for anyone listening, go listen to my podcast with Diana Henriquez, who wrote a fantastic book about the 1987 crash and all the events leading up to it. It's a little scary and somewhat prescient when we think about what happened just 10 years ago. All right, so Greenspan's, like, light on the regulatory pedal like ease up what are the things that he eases up and how is that set the stage for the financial
1: crisis so I think there's sort of two big areas that you want to be focused on the first is that he is very supportive of allowing large banks to expand their lines of business to enter into more and more areas to become financial supermarkets he's a big supporter of breaking down the barriers that were imposed after the Great Depression to sort of silo financial activity and to limit the size of the largest banks he thinks these are outdated rules and he wants them to go away another really important area is and and I think almost more important than breaking down the old rules is that he really resists the creation of new rules. And probably the most important example of this is, is the credit derivative space, where you have a new industry that's growing up ostensibly to offer insurance, credit insurance, Uh, but in fact underwriting large-scale gambling. And Greenspan says we don't need to regulate it. In fact, fiercely resists federal efforts to impose even the most cursory kinds of regulations, like bringing transactions into daylight, insisting that transactions be recorded, Uh, sort of the stuff that just allows a market to have some hope of regulating itself. And what you get is is just a, a black market, basically, in which nobody can see in from the outside. Uh, no one's quite sure what's going on innovation is happening very rapidly and regulators are pretty much blind this is Jill on money
0: Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger certified financial planner CBS News business analyst and host of this the Jill on money podcast I'm here to tell you about our sponsor Marcus by Goldman Sachs Marcus is part of a storied company that's been a leader in financial services for generations Marcus offers simple, secure access to FDIC insured savings products, including a high yield online savings account that earns four times the national average. Marcus also offers certificates of deposit, including a no penalty CD. Get inspired by your savings account and start saving today to help meet your financial goals tomorrow. You can money. Visit marcus.com forward slash save national average data provided by Informa and accuracy cannot be guaranteed Marcus deposits products provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA member FDIC and now back to our interview with Vinya Applebaum he's the author of the economist hour as the financial crisis hits we have a a new regime it has now shifted Greenspan has when was Greenspan's last year
1: 2006
0: okay so now we get the Ben Bernanke area Tell us about Ben Bernanke.
1: So Ben Bernanke is a guy who has studied the Great Depression. He's a scholar of monetary policy. He's a theoretical guy in a way that Greenspan never was. And his view of the Great Depression, which is a very influential view, is that what went wrong is that the financial system was allowed to collapse. That when you lose a bank, you don't just lose its ability to make loans. You lose its institutional knowledge of its customers. And no replacement institution is going to be able to lend to the same extent or with the same confidence. And that's some of what causes the economy to contract. So Bernanke is very focused on preventing the financial system from going down. And he pumps money into the economy to prevent that. Basically, you know, like offering transfusions to the banks until they stand up and start walking again. That is his absolute focus. But with the collapse of the economy, he also begins a reconsideration of the purpose of the Fed as an institution. Because under Greenspan and Volcker, the sole focus was really on limiting inflation, just getting inflation as low as possible and keeping it there. And they insisted that that was sufficient to produce stable and steady growth. And for a while, it seemed like they were right. But 2008 made it impossible for people to take that idea seriously. And so Bernanke and his successors really needed to grapple with a broader vision of what the Fed is supposed to do.
0: I always think the Fed has three main jobs one is as a regulator right that's the biggie and then we have this thing called the dual mandate so when did the dual mandate which is essentially have an economy that has enough jobs so that if everyone wants a job gets a job and keep inflation low when did that come to be
1: So, the Fed is created in 1913 basically to prevent and to fight financial crises that is the original purpose of the institution And over time, as you say, it gains this other purpose, which in time becomes even primary. And it's basically the same history that we've just talked about. So after World War II, the idea that the government is responsible for minimizing unemployment becomes prominent in public discourse. At first, the Fed is regarded essentially as irrelevant to that project. It's a fiscal policy project. Uh, But Milton Friedman is really the person who succeeds in convincing policymakers that actually fiscal policy is the wrong way to address those issues. The only government entity that can meaningfully regulate economic activity is the Federal Reserve, and its focus should be on regulating inflation. So through the 60s and the 70s, you have this debate in public policy in effort to sort of make the law of the land that the Fed is responsible for dealing with unemployment and inflation, and then a battle inside the Fed that's ultimately resolved in favor of Uh, minimizing any responsibility for unemployment and just focusing on inflation.
0: I guess that I didn't know this, that Humphrey Hawkins only goes back to the Carter administration. I had no idea.
1: And in fact, is a last-ditch effort to force the Fed to do something that the Fed has already basically decided it's not interested in doing. So the point in time at which the Fed is legally charged – With minimizing unemployment by the Humphrey Hawkins Act it's basically a sort of a last hurrah of the Keynesian project of making government responsible for unemployment that law goes on the books even as Paul Volcker is taking over the Fed and basically instituting a new regime that is solely focused on minimizing inflation by the time that law is written it's it's frankly a dead letter
0: Keynesian only comes back after the financial crisis
1: The financial crisis basically reopens the debate. It's so clear that what we've been doing for the last four decades hadn't worked, that there's this new opportunity to think about alternative policies. In the first place, you know, the old observation that, you know, in foxholes, all of a sudden you find a lot of Keynesians is true. When the economy crashes, people want to do something. And Keynes offered this powerful set of ideas for doing something. So interest in his ideas revives there is still you know an awareness that what was happening in the 60s hadn't worked so it's not like people want to revive exactly those policies but they want to take the good parts from them and to reconsider the bad parts of what we've been doing lately
0: in the aftermath of the financial crisis who is the champion of helping the people who is that economist who is saying we're doing this wrong like you can't do one without the other
1: There were a lot of economists making that case. I think in the hour of decision-making, there wasn't enough debate about the need to help people. There was still this, the, the policymakers with whom Obama surrounded himself were mostly indoctrinated in this view that, you know, that you ought not to go out and help people. They were very reluctant to take those steps. And in time, you get a newer generation of voices saying, listen, inequality in our economy is a fundamental problem. The debt burden uh, on many consumers is a fundamental problem. Uh, You know, we can't just fix the financial system and trust that it's going to produce broad prosperity. We need to reconsider what role government should be playing in the economy. And over the last decade, we've heard... A generation of younger economists grounded in a much more careful analysis of data that has become possible because of computing power, you know, grounded in a much broader willingness to consider ideas from psychology you know, and other fields, uh, really offering an alternative vision of, of government's role in the economy that I think is, is compelling and, and promising.
0: This is slightly depressing, this book, i got to tell you, because there's a, there's a stat early on that I highlighted which blew my mind. In the United States growth slowed in each successive decade during the half century described in this book from an annual average of three point one three percent in the 60s to point nine four percent in the two thousands and that's adjusting for inflation and population what's the answer here is growth is slowing down and how can economists help make those slices of the pie a little bit more even
1: I think there are two answers and maybe the way to frame it is to talk for a moment about the 1990s which is a period that many people remember as the last era of really great prosperity in the United States and it was but In the 1990s, what we were basically doing is harvesting an orchard that had been planted in earlier generations. We had the most educated workforce in the world. We had made massive investments in the development of the Internet, and we were able to reap the gains of those investments. What we were not doing in that period was investing in the future. We were no longer investing in education. We were no longer investing in research. We were no longer as a society constructing the infrastructure that makes it possible to prosper in the future. So the first part of the answer is that we need to be making those investments as a society. We need to take seriously the idea that government can make people's lives better, not necessarily so much immediately as in the long term. Uh, The second answer is that inequality is a problem. When you say that the book is depressing, I'm actually glad in a sense because I think most of the people who are likely to read this book are from the portion of the American population that's doing fine. And it's really important for them to get the message That a huge chunk of the American population is not and it's getting worse and that inequality is not only bad for those people it's bad for all of us because it means that they can't produce and reach their capacity and because it means that democratic governance gets harder we the people is falling apart because we share less in common and that's something we all ought to be acutely concerned about so the problem is inequality and the solution is public policies that are explicitly focused on reducing inequality and I think those two paths have a lot of promise.
0: All right. That's kind of pretty optimistic. I like that. Promise. Promise is good. What do you see as the three most important economic issues that the candidate should be wrestling with right now?
1: I think the first one, uh, and I've written about this, is that candidates ought to be answering the following question. How would you improve the life of a home health care worker? Uh, People don't know this, but the most rapidly growing kind of work in America is taking care of baby boomers. And the people who do it are incredibly poorly paid. They don't have benefits. Uh, They don't get to take care of themselves. We still have politicians talking about, you know, reviving steelworking jobs, auto working jobs. Never going to happen. This is a service economy, and our focus needs to be on improving the quality of service work. That's number one. Number two, we need to find a way of building a public consensus in favor of making investments in the economy, in favor of providing education. Uh, Universal pre-K is a wonderful idea with a lot of potential. It's expensive, but it's the type of thing you need to invest in in order to realize long-term growth. Um, so I think those two would be uh, very much at the top of my list
0: how important is the health care because you mentioned helm health care workers and people working with aging baby boomers how important is that as an issue
1: absolutely it's a huge issue and I would sort of fold it into this umbrella of improving the life of that low-income worker because right now the person who's providing health care for the baby boomer does not have their own health insurance policy in many cases does not have easy access to care cannot take care of themselves uh, strengthening the social safety net is an important part of making sure that you know the prosperity the massive prosperity of America in the 21st century is actually making life better for the people who live here
0: so presumably you believe that the future will hold higher income tax rates for those who earn more money because to do the things that you're suggesting we would suspect that there will be higher tax rates for those earning more money not necessarily in the middle
1: I think Americans generally support a level of government services that exceeds their willingness to pay for it. That is, you know, the deficit in simplest terms. Uh, We've allowed the amount of money that we collect to deteriorate over time. Uh, We need to find a way of uh, building public support for the things that we all say we want and understanding that they need to be paid for. And yeah, part of that is that we... Uh, if we want all of these things we need to be willing to pay higher income taxes
0: let's make it simple you want it simple you're gonna pay more in taxes for everyone who's called here and said to me I want a simpler tax code I always say okay I hope you enjoy your higher taxes because that's what it will be it will be simple and it will be more
1: that historically has been a very fruitful direction you know I mean the 86 uh, tax reform that is still remembered fondly by everyone that's what it was and, you know we've allowed sort of the tax code to get riddled with loopholes again and I think there's much to say for making you know the tax base broader and and that that's important you're listening to Jill on money
0: okay it is time for the Marcus minute we're presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs today in the hot seat Binyamin Applebaum his book is called the economist hour are you ready to play I'm ready what's one word to describe your relationship with money
1: uh prudent
0: what's always worth spending on
1: baseball tickets
0: whose face would you put on the dollar bill
1: other than george washington you mean i think harriet tubman is due if they're not going to put her on the 20 let's put her on the one
0: how much do you spend on a haircut and i am smiling at this one 20 bucks does that include your beard
1: uh no i trim my beard myself
0: it's your last day on earth you've got a hundred dollars in your pocket what are you going to do with it
1: I don't know, get a really good meal.
0: Binya Applebaum, thank you so much for being with
1: us. It's my pleasure.
0: Thanks so much to Binya Applebaum for coming in. What a great guest, so informative. The book is called The Economist Hour False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. We drop new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday here, and sometimes we throw in a bonus if you want to make sure not to miss one single episode subscribe to Jill on money you can do it at Apple stitcher radio.com Google Play anywhere else you find your favorite podcasts and if you have a financial question don't forget you can always email us ask Jill at Jill on our music is composed by Joel Goodman mark to is the best executive producer in the world we're distributed by cadence 13 our show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs see you next week